Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 10th annual Festival of Ideas. Um, this year's theme is truth. And um, when the Festival Advisory Board first met uh, back in January, uh, the film Denial was just sort of, there was a lot of marketing, and one of the members had, had seen the film and uh, you know, talked about it. And it's actually one of the things that first led us towards this theme of truth. You know, it obviously deals with denial and denial of history and how you prove uh, something history in court. Um, and the panel had the discussion amongst them and they said, oh, well, where's the Cambridge connection? And someone went, I know, Rachel Weiss is an alumna here. Let's invite her. Now, uh, I think you'll all be glad that we didn't go with that suggestion and that uh, <laughs> Professor Sir Richard Evans would probably speak much better about his involvement uh, in, in the actual trial and, and uh, about how that's depicted in the film. So uh, you're not here to hear me speak, you're here to hear Richard speak, so please put your hands together um, and welcome him here. So how many of you have seen the film Denial? Uh, quite a lot. Well, uh, the, uh, there may be some spoilers in what I have to say if you haven't seen it, but I, I do recommend it. As you know, it's a, it's a film uh, essentially about a trial. Uh, it's a film about a libel action, defamation action brought by the writer David Irving against Deborah Lipstadt, <coughs> an American academic, and her publishers in this country, Penguin Books. And uh, he brought it because he... Uh, considered that in her book, uh, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory, uh, she had uh, libeled him. She devoted about six pages of this book to Irving, and it's about a 350-page or so book. Uh, it's, it traces the uh, denial of the Holocaust from the end of the Second World War up to what was then the present in the early 1990s. Uh, Holocaust denial, and this is actually agreed in the court uh, by all concerned, including Mr. Irving, uh, Holocaust denial consists of uh, four basic elements. First of all, a denial that six million or something like, something closely approaching six million Jews were killed by the Nazis, were exterminated by the Nazis and their allies in World War II. Um, the figure the deniers say was much, much smaller there's a couple of hundred thousand, maybe, 400,000, round about that level, perhaps. Secondly, there's no intention or plan or concerted program, uh, and certainly uh, no direction by Hitler, the German leader, uh, leader of the Nazi party and the Third Reich, to exterminate the Jews. Such Jews as were killed were killed, according to the Holocaust deniers, in, uh, as a sort of unavoidable, what you would call collateral damage in the course of the war. There's no deliberate plan or intention. Thirdly, gas chambers, which notoriously were used uh, both at the Reinhard camps, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec, and uh, at Auschwitz, gas chambers were not used for the extermination. And fourthly, the evidence on which historians have relied since 1945 was Holocaust deniers uh, allege either falsified or concocted uh, during and particularly after the war, uh, and inevitably, of course, by the Jews. So it is a fundamentally anti-Semitic uh, set of ideas. And in this context, uh, Deborah Lipstadt wrote these six pages about Irving. Now, Irving 
never been to university, he's not got a degree, he's never had an official university position, he's a professional writer. He's always depended on his writings and his publications, which have focused in a number of books, many books, overwhelmingly on World War II and on the German side, particularly on the German leadership. Uh, he's not, and never has been, primarily a writer about the Holocaust, as he made perfectly clear in the trial, and I think that's right. But in the course of writing about Germany in World War II, of course, you have to deal with the extermination of the Jews. He had gained a reputation from the 1970s onwards as a very assiduous, conscientious researcher. He found documents that uh, other historians had not managed to find. This is mainly because he had a reputation as being relatively sympathetic to the Nazis. So old Nazis or their families would open up their uh, private archives to him, which they wouldn't do to other historians. And he did discover some uh, matters of interest. Uh, some, uh, and you can see this in his books, which are extensively footnoted or endnoted uh, and, and, and referenced. He claimed to be more accurate, more thorough, better researcher than anyone else. Historians, he said, only other historians just copied each other, um, so he never bothered to read them, though he didn't quite realize the contradiction between those two statements. Um, so he depended on this reputation. His books had sold very well, particularly the 70s. But in the 80s and the late 80s, he became what you might call a hardline Holocaust denier. If you compare the two editions of his book, Hitler's War, the first, 1977, published ironically by Penguin Books, with the 1992 edition, self-published, uh, with his own publishing uh, organization called Focal Point, uh, you can see in the second edition, 1992, he's removed uh, all of the references to Auschwitz as an extermination centre. It becomes a labour camp. He's removed the references to the Holocaust. It's, it's, it's radically changed. Um, curiously, when I consulted this book in the British Library, I was sent to the pornography desk. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever been to the pornography desk. But you sit there, there's a kind of eagle-eyed person looking down, make sure you keep your hands on the table kind of stuff. <laughs> so... Uh, and uh, presumably they must have thought that, that neo-fascists and neo-Nazis would have got rather overexcited by this, this, this work. Whatever it is, uh, that was what I, what, what I found. Um, and what Deborah Lipstadt, uh, the, the reason why he changed his, um, his line was he was involved in a trial of a man who recently died called Ernst Sundel, a German-Canadian or German uh, Holocaust denier. Uh, that was his principal interest, in fact, um, who was living in Canada. He had some rather strange ideas. He thought, uh, for example, he'd published a book alleging that the Nazis had gone into hiding underneath the Antarctic after the war and sent out uh, UFOs, uh, flying saucers, to see if it was safe to come back uh, after that, and other strange ideas. But he was a hardline Holocaust denier. And in his trial in Canada, under an obsolete law, subsequently, probably rightly, ruled unconstitutional, uh, he was accused of spreading false news. That comes from the American War of Independence, I think. Um, and he called, Zundel called as a witness, uh, a, a rather another curious character called Fred Luster or Leuchter. <coughs> Fred Luster was an engineer who made a living by supplying lethal injection facilities to American penal institutions. But uh, he had been commissioned to by um, Zundel and his supporters to go to Auschwitz and look at the, enter the ruins of the gas chamber, uh, which the SS had blown up at the end of the war, but not terribly successfully, 
and take scrapings off the interior walls, send them for analysis to, without saying what they were, to a professional chemist, who found that the cyanide residues were very, very low indeed, there are very little uh, cyanide residues there. So Luster and Irving, professing to be convinced by this, uh, argued that therefore they were not used to kill people, they were used to kill uh, lice, a delousing facility. Now there's two things, obvious things, wrong with this argument. One is he took great chunks out of the wall instead of scrapings off the inside, so no wonder the concentration was very low. Secondly, it takes 22 times higher concentration of cyanide to kill lice than it does human beings because lice can crawl into the interstices of clothes, they can hide in little pockets of air and so on. Uh, nevertheless, Irving, from that point onwards in 87, 88, professed himself convinced and became a hardline Holocaust denier. And this led to him being rather frozen out of the media. It led to respectable publishers refusing to publish his work. Uh, it led to him being uh, decommissioned by the Sunday Times, which had, in 1992, initially accepted uh, his uh, publication of the final undiscovered uh, set of uh, extracts from the final previously undiscovered set of diaries of Joseph Goebbels, undoubtedly genuine, unlike the Hitler diaries from 1983. Um, but uh, there had been a big row when he started publishing them in translation in the Sunday Times. So uh, he saw in bringing this libel action uh, some opportunities. One, to get back into the media and propagate his ideas. Two, to get some financial compensation for his monetary losses. And he claimed that uh, the, what Lips had written, that he was a Holocaust denier and a falsifier of the evidence. He doctored the evidence, he falsified history. Uh, that went to the heart of his reputation as an assiduous researcher. So he claimed exemplary damages because he said it was deeply affected his reputation and therefore his income because he solely relied on the, uh, on the proceeds of his books and his talks and so on. Now, the book was published in America in 1993, <coughs> but um, <coughs> the problem with seeing somebody for libel in America is extremely difficult. The First Amendment to the Constitution gives a prima facie uh, 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 assumption, in presumption in favour of freedom of speech. If you're going to attack somebody's freedom of speech, you've got to be very sure about it. And secondly, you have to prove deliberate malice, a deliberate attempt intent to damage the person you're talking about. And thirdly, if the person who's claiming to be libeled is a public figure, then uh, it counts as fair comment. And the definition in the States of a public figure is extremely broad and would certainly have included Irving. So there's no point in suing in the States. So he waited until 1994, till the book came out in the UK. Now, uh, in the UK, the things are very different. You are, uh, you can sue anybody for libel, and the, uh, there are only three means of combating that, of defending yourself. <coughs> so when the uh, Irving's um, lawsuit came in, the lawyers, uh, Mishkondorea, Anthony Julius, who'd made a reputation for himself, not as a libel solicitor, but as a man who uh, got a record divorce settlement for Princess Diana, her divorce with uh, Prince Charles, um, he was a well-known lawyer. Uh, he uh, outlined, as happens in the film, shown in the film, he outlined three possible defences. One, 
the words didn't mean what Irving said they meant. Well, Lebelitzta is a very clear writer. It's very unambiguous. They clearly did mean that. They, she called him a Holocaust denier, a falsifier of history. So that's no good. Secondly, yeah, they mean what, what they claim they mean, but they're not damaging. But they clearly were damaging to Irving's reputation and his income. So that's no good. The third defence, therefore, is the only one available. That was what's called justification. Yes, the words mean what they claim to, to mean. Yes, they are damaging, but they're true. And truth is an absolute defence in English law. So that's the road that they decided to go down. Now this, as the film points out, is a very strange paradoxical situation. You're accused of something and you have to prove that you're innocent. The other guy doesn't have to prove that you're guilty. So it's very kind of topsy-turvy, but that's what happened. And so uh, Mish Gondorea, Anthony Julius and his team assembled uh, a number of uh, expert witnesses to testify on the case. Now, the, uh, as the film shows, uh, it's quite accurate. Uh, Deborah Lipstadt initially wanted to go into the witness stand herself, initially wanted to call Holocaust survivors to testify to the reality of the gas chambers, which they'd narrowly escaped, the camps, uh, the extermination, and so on. But this would have been a bad mistake. As the lawyers make clear, what you have to do essentially in justification is to repeat the original libel but at ma massively greater length with hugely more evidence. So in fact, instead of six pages in Lipstadt's book, in the end there were 2,000 pages of expert testimony. You have to prove that they are, that they're, they're true, that the, the allegations are, are absolutely true. And anything that detracts from keeping the focus on the claimant, on the plaintiff, in this operation is going to kind of dissipate your energy. Uh, secondly, um, it's not about whether the Holocaust happened or not. That's often misunderstood. <coughs> it's about whether Irving deliberately misrepresented the Holocaust. Now, there's, of course, a very fine distinction, but it is, as he said quite correctly in the trial, about what went on in, in the four walls of his study, not what happened out there in Auschwitz in the 1940s. Now, of course, the one has the implications for the other, so the boundaries are very kind of blurred. But that was what the focus had to be. And to call now very elderly people uh, with perhaps slightly faulty memories and onto the witness stand and expose them to, to questioning from a man who clearly believed that they had not gone through what they claimed they'd gone through, they'd not suffered, they'd not been in Auschwitz, um, that would have been, I think, extremely upsetting to them not only not good for the trial, for the case, but also, I think, rather inhumane. So it was decided to rely on expert testimony. Now, uh, that uh, meant that the expert witnesses had to be chosen, and there's a much larger number, about half a dozen expert witnesses. There were only two of them really feature in the film because the film has to simplify things, obviously, uh, and not make them too, too indigestible. One was Robert Jan van Pelt, who's an expert on, the, uh, on Auschwitz, on the gas chambers, on the buildings. He had discovered the uh, plans you know, made by the construction company. He'd sifted through an enormous amount of evidence. He was a world expert on, on Auschwitz. Uh, and the other one was me. Uh, now, I was commissioned to go through Irving's writings, his books, as I've already mentioned, but plenty more of them, uh, he uh, was obliged by uh, court order in a process called discovery, which means you have to make available to the other side 
anything of conceivable relevance to the, 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 the trial. Uh, there were two court orders which obliged Irving to uh, make available his diaries, his correspondence with publishers, his research notes, um, recordings of his speeches, um, everything of any conceivable uh, relevance. Uh, at which point I, I said, I can't possibly do this myself. Uh, and I had two researchers, who are two of my PhD students, uh, as shown in the film, to help me. So I didn't have to watch the, um, the uh, extremely boring speeches that he gave. So um, I had to go through, we, we parceled up the kind of the, the work between, uh, between ourselves. Now, if you're an expert witness, you're probably familiar from television with expert witnesses. It's the kind of pathologist who comes in and says the, the, uh, the wound on the body is so and so deep at such an angle, uh, and uh, so it must have, the murderer must have been uh, six foot three, male, left-handed, and using a kitchen knife, something, something like that. Um, or, or, but most common, in fact, are pharmacologists who testify about poison residues within, within a, a, a body. Um, so it's not unusual for a historian to have to do that kind of thing. Now, you are commissioned and paid by one side, <coughs> but there are various escape clauses which allow you to entirely work on your own without any kind of instruction or obligation to the people who are commissioning you. The first is you have to sign an, an affidavit uh, and uh, in saying that you're, uh, you're not... Um, paying any attention to who's paid you, you're telling, you're advising the court, you are a friend of the court, as it's, as it's known. It used to be called amicus curiae, but just after the, uh, when the trial, just before the trial began, uh, Tony Blair had banned the use of Latin in the courtroom, which is very upsetting to the lawyers who like to show off. <laughs> uh, so um, you are a friend of the court. Your obligation is to the court, not to the people who are commissioning you. Secondly, very importantly, you're paid by the hour. You're paid at standard expert witness rates. As, as you might think, there's a scale, uh, there is a scale of, of, of pay that you're, you're given so much an hour, and you're paid by the hour. So if I'd have written a report and saying, Irving's a wonderful historian, Lipstadt's telling you, talking nonsense, uh, Anthony Juris could not have turned around and said to me, oh, uh, sorry then, you're not going to get your money. You're simply paid by the hour. Uh, and uh, if you go to Irving's website, you'll see... Uh, I, I was supposed to have earned a quarter of a million pounds from it, if only. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a cl characteristic uh, exaggeration of his. Uh, in fact, I earned about £70,000 over three tax years. The whole thing took three years, basically, which is very, very nice, but not, not extravagant. Um, and uh, it was a lot of work. Uh, in the movie, uh, John Sessions, who's playing me, says... Uh, it'll take about a year, but in fact, it took a good deal longer than that. Um, the, uh, the third let out is if the people who are commissioning the expert report don't like it, <coughs> don't think it's useful, then they can simply refuse to call you to the witness stand in the trial, and that means the court has to disregard anything you've, you, you've written. Uh, so um, all of those things, I think, are a guarantee of the independence. The film gives a rather misleading impression here at the beginning where it uh, gives the impression that I, and particularly my researchers, are raring to go, to nail Irving, to get him. This wasn't the case at all. None of us had read his books. They have no interest to academic historians. They're popular history. And we didn't know what to expect. And part of the whole excitement of working on the case was that uh, the excitement of discovery. Uh, we'd have our regular meetings, and 
uh, Nick and Thomas would come in waving pieces of paper saying, look what I found, you wouldn't believe what I found, and so on. Um, so it's not quite true we were out to get him at all. We, we had no real preconceptions. We just knew a little bit about his reputation, but we hadn't actually read the, read the stuff. So we, uh, we began work. Um, we decided that, uh, first of all, we had to deal with the issue of Holocaust denial. Well, that was clearly a, quite clearly uh, not too difficult. I've already said that the two main uh, the differences between the two editions of Hitler's war, also particularly in speeches that he gave in recordings, uh, he's less guarded or, or less circumspect than he was in his writings. But in his writings, it was clear he did qualify for all those four definitions of Holocaust denial. Uh, the second was much, much more difficult, much more complicated. It was proving falsification. Now, uh, I was slightly concerned about, about the epistemological aspects of this, uh, because in a uh, criminal case, you have to prove your case beyond reasonable doubt. And historians feel very uncomfortable with that. We're very fond of the word probably. But that, uh, in a civil case, a civil case like this, it's on the balance of probabilities. And that, of course, is what we're used to working with as historians. And the law's, um, the law's attitude to facts and evidence are actually very similar to those of the historians. In fact, the defense did uh, ditch one expert report, which is about Irving and neo-Nazism and neo-fascism, was by a political scientist who spent pages and pages and pages going through all the possible definitions and history, all the definitions and writings about neo-fascism come up with a definition. We didn't want that. What the defense wanted was, here's a, a, a reliable report by two witnesses saying that Mr. Irving was in this hotel in Germany uh, with this chap who'd been convicted of neo-Nazi activities. That kind of hard, concrete evidence. And that, of course, is what historians are used to, used to working with. The case was tried uh, from the 11th of January to the 11th of April uh, in uh, 2000. And uh, it, as I said, it begun in 1994, a year after the publication of America, that's book. So it's quite a long time. The actual preparation began in 1997. And <coughs> by the, in the summer of 1999, the reports had to be in. The, uh, tri there was, the trial was done without a jury. And the, uh, there's a preliminary hearing uh, in which Irving agreed to have the trial without a jury. Uh, this, I think, uh, uh, it shows quite accurately Anthony Julius rather flattering him by saying, oh, it's full of German, it's difficult, the complicated issues, jury will never understand, uh, let, let's, let's do it before a judge. Uh, there's several consequences of this. One is it was much shorter than it would otherwise be because we could then simply hand in our reports as experts and the judge would read them, whereas in a jury trial we'd have been questioned on them for days, probably weeks on end, on every single point. Uh, and secondly, there was uh, a judgment, a 350-page judgment issued at the end of the trial, whereas with a jury would have just been a series of questions to the foreman or foreperson of the jury uh, with an answer sort of yes or no. You know, do, do you find this allegation is substantiated? Kind of thing. Uh, so it was not a clever move on, on, on Irving's part. He uh, also decided to conduct the trial himself. He was a litigant in person. Uh, not to have a barrister, in other words. Um, possibly because he couldn't afford to pay a barrister, or, or perhaps not only that, but also he couldn't 
didn't feel he could trust a barrister to bring out the political significance and get across the message that he wanted to get across. And that gave the trial a particularly kind of personal sort of personal edge, I think, when he was conducting it himself. Now, uh, in the movie, uh, he's played by Timothy Spall, who is uh, physically quite different to Irving. He's a large, bulky man with a rather intimidating manner. Uh, Richard Rampton's played by a man who's also, I think, larger than he was himself, but brilliantly by Tom Wilkinson. Rachel Weiss plays Deborah Lipstadt, and I have enormous regard for Deborah Lipstadt, but uh, Rachel Weiss cannot conceal, even with a ghastly red wig, uh, the fact that she is actually a very beautiful, sexy woman. And when they cut in, in the film from me giving evidence uh, to her looking adoringly up at me, I think if it had been her, I would have crumbled at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and... Um, so, uh, and I was played by John Sessions, and as you will have noticed if you've seen the film, there is no physical resemblance between the, the actors and the people they're playing. John Sessions would have had to have lost a lot of weight to be playing me. Uh, he was rather too plump, I thought, but he does it very, very, very well and very, very convincingly. All the courtroom scenes in the film are taken direct and unamended from the courtroom transcripts. So they are what was actually said in court. There are a number of other scenes uh, which are reconstructed uh, with a slight sort of fictional element, but on the whole, the movie is very true to the spirit and much of the letter of the, of the action. Uh, it, it, now, why, why, film, why film it now? It's, it's rather odd for me to, <coughs> um, after 16 or more years, suddenly to see this whole thing blowing up all over again. Well, I think there's a number of reasons for this. First, it's not the first time there's been an attempt to make a film of the trial. I think the trial's significance is recognised immediately with worldwide media uh, headlines, massive reporting of the judgment, and so on. Um, there was a, an instant drama doc by Channel 4 in which I was played by an old man with a white beard because that's what I thought Cambridge professors looked like. <laughs> uh, then a more considered one a, a couple of years later by a BBC Two called History on Trial, uh, where they actually phoned me up beforehand, sort of how old was I, how tall, how, uh, yes, how fat or thin, uh, colour hair and so on. Uh, and I was played by uh, Michael Kitchen, who some of you may know as the detective in the series Foil's War. And by uh, a curious chance, a couple of months later, I was uh, walking through Fitzrovia on a sunny day, and who should be sitting in a pavement cafe but Michael Kitchen? So I went up to him. I don't usually do this, you know. And I, I said, you Michael Kitchen? Yes, you know, thinking it's some fan of Foyle's War. And I said, you played me on television. Well, that got his attention. <laughs> Not often one of your characters comes up to you. <laughs> so I explained who I was, and he remembered and so on. And he said, well, I hope I played you to your satisfaction. And I said, yes, you played me far better than I played myself. <laughs> because you could rehearse and practice. I only had one shot. <laughs> uh, then, uh, uh, then there was an attempt by, that, that was quite a good, it was a drama doc. It was sort of courtroom scenes, talking heads, uh, mainly David Cesarani, and uh, then um, uh, archive footage. So definitely a one three quarter hour documentary. Uh, well worth watching if you can get hold of it. Then there was an attempt by Ridley Scott, no less, to make a movie. Uh, now, he commissioned a screenplay by Ronald Harwood, who won an Oscar for 
uh, The Pianist, which I'm sure many of you have seen, a wonderful script. But it, Ridley Scott thought it was no good and went sent it to a script doctor in Hollywood. He couldn't fix it, so it never happened. Um, uh, the reason why it took so long is I think because a movie, you need an identity figure. You need someone to identify with when you're watching it. And without Deborah Lipstadt's memoirs of the trial, which came out much later, that wasn't possible. It would have been too much like a documentary. And I think David Hare, in writing the screenplay, uh, did, uh, was extremely um, clever in making Deborah Lipstadt the centre of attention from beginning to end. It's her own personal experience. And the trial and the action is all refracted through, through that. And that gives you, I think, a sense of identity and it communicates the awful anxiety that she must have felt all the way through uh, at being sued for libel. I mean, again, fortunately, that hardly ever happens to historians. It mostly happens in France, where members of the French Resistance regularly sue historians for writing about the French Resistance and they think mis misrepresenting them. Uh, so it was her personal story. Uh, and that, I think, is very, a very important aspect of the film, pulls it all together, gives you somebody to sympathise with and identify with. Uh, the uh, Holocaust survivor, played by Harriet Walter, stands for quite a large number of people, but I think that, uh, that, that part of the action is quite, uh, is quite accurate. Uh, it's just represented in a very pared-down, simplified way. Uh, I felt sorry for Robert Jan van Pelt. He came in uh, on a plane from Canada and gave his uh, testimony about Auschwitz. And uh, a few, not long before the end, close a play on one, one afternoon, uh, Irving ambushed him with some uh, about the, the holes on the roof. Now, uh, in the, the gas chambers, uh, the Jews are crowded into a room and then cyanide pellets are dropped in through holes of the crematorium, the, the, the gas chamber roof, and the body heat... Uh, dissolved them and the gas killed them. Uh, and Irving claimed that there were no holes on the roof in the photographic evidence of the remains of the, of the gas chamber. Uh, and it was a difficult moment. It was a bad moment. Um, uh, we, the whole defence team was in, in a state of uh, acute anxiety. Now, the film... Ends, it ends Robert Young's uh, evidence there. I come in on my white charger. I rescue the whole situation, which is wonderful for me. But uh, it's very unfair on Robert Young, who then redeemed himself in the following uh, two or three days with a lot more evidence. Uh, so he's justifiably, I think, not terribly happy about the way he's, he's portrayed. One uh, impression the film, I think, inevitably as a piece of drama, has to give is that the issue was in doubt all the way through. And obviously, Deborah Lipset must have felt that. Uh, how could you feel otherwise? It's very uh, worrying and upsetting, and she withstood the strain very well. But in fact, the defence team was very clear from the beginning that uh, it was going to win. The evidence was just far too overwhelming, uh, and the question was only how, by how much would, would the defence win. But that wouldn't have made for a terribly exciting movie, of course. Now, what did we do in, uh, in compiling my expert report with my team? Well, um, we, the Holocaust denial part, I mentioned, and then the falsification. So what we decided to do was to take uh, Irving at the points where he felt he was strongest. He said there, was a 19, there were 19 instances or bundles of instances or sets of evidence uh, where, which were the only ones that gave any reliable guide to uh, Hitler and the planning of the Holocaust and the implementation of the Holocaust 
and <clears throat> that they, uh, they showed incontrovertibly that Hitler was, as he wrote, uh, in, in, uh, quote-unquote, probably the best fed the Jews ever had in the Third Reich. So we decided to go for those. We parceled them up. We chased back all the writings to their sources, through the end notes. We went to... Um, uh, we had correspondence with archives from Moscow, Washington, Berlin, Munich, uh, all over the place. Israel, the is Israeli government released the previously embargoed uh, prison memoirs of Adolf Eichmann, one of the main implementers of the, of, of the Holocaust. So we had an enormous amount of, of evidence. And uh, it, these, all of this showed uh, that uh, Irving systematically falsified and doctored the evidence. He put words in where they weren't there, he left words out uh, where they were there to create the impression that he wanted to, wanted to give. The film shows one instance of this. I was actually in the, I mean, some of these people, somebody asked me, so you were only in the witness box for five minutes, this is what the film shows. No, no, 28 hours I was there being questioned by Irving uh, over a period of, 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 of several days, well over a week. Um, I only had uh, one piece of advice before writing my report, the, the uh, lawyers only intervened once. They said, can you number your paragraphs? I said, no, it, it interrupts the flow of thought. So do it yourself. So they did. Uh, it's a normal legal thing. And uh, secondly, when I got into the witness box, uh, Anthony Julius said, well, don't take too many sips of water from the, jug, from, from, from the glass. It's very embarrassing to have to ask for a comfort break. Uh, but otherwise, otherwise, uh, and I didn't. I survived. I survived. My 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 bladder proved reasonably sound. Uh, it's because you're two and a half hours there in the morning, two and a half hours in the afternoon without interruption. It's like going through more than two uh, very taxing seminars uh, a day, day after day. And of course, the adrenaline keeps you keeps you going. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. I think all the the, the kind of um, keenness and so on. It was very difficult because Irving started off by saying, now you say, President, blah, 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 you know, do you, uh, is that really the case? Uh, and I would say, can you point to me, uh, me to the place in my report where I say that, the page and the line, 740-page report. And the judge said, oh, come on, I mean, do we have to do this? And I said, yes, my lord, because I can't trust Mr. Irving to give an accurate representation of what I've written in my report. <laughs> and this turned out to be true. There was an extraordinary exchange uh, fairly late on when we were dealing with Hitler's so-called political testament, where he says, uh, words to the effect of uh, the Jews, he blames the Jews, worldwide Jewish conspiracy, for bombing German cities. And he said the Jews have had to pay for this crime even if in a more humane way, by which Hitler means the gas chambers in Auschwitz and Treblinka. And so I quoted this, and Irving said, so you say the gas chambers are, are humane? I said, no, no, it's Hitler who's saying the gas chambers are humane. So you had to, you had to be absolutely on your guard all the way through uh, for this, this kind, of, kind of thing. The film shows just one instance of falsification, quite uh, intelligently, I think. It's a key one. And behind John Sessions, strike me, on, uh, there's a blow-up of the actual passage where you can see, so if you look carefully, it's old German handwriting, which... Uh, became obsolete in, in the war, but Himmler used it, the, the head of the SS, the man who organized the, uh, and ran the final, so-called final solution of the Jewish problem, the extermination program. And uh, that is from his telephone log. He's a very, very meticulous, pedantic kind of person. So he kept a log of every phone call. And this phone, this says, 
It's a phone call to Heydrich, he's second in command, he's in Prague. Uh, it says, Judentransport aus Berlin, keine Vernichtung. Due transport from Berlin, no annihilation. And Irving said, and it was in writing in his works, this was uh, a command from Hitler that there should be no annihilation of the Jews anywhere. He achieved that by leaving the words aus Berlin, from Berlin, out. And in the course of the trial, he also tried to add an, a word, E, a letter, E, to the word transport, meaning transporter, plural, which clearly wasn't there. Himmler had very admirably clear handwriting, unlike Goebbels, the propaganda minister. So uh, he, that's this kind of double falsification. And then, where's the evidence that Hitler had anything to do with it? Uh, well, it was in the field headquarters at Rastenburg, and the, um, uh, Irving said, well, Hitler must have told Himmler he wouldn't have issued this command without it. <coughs> but Himmler's appointments diary had been published recently, an incredibly expensive German edition, which um, I think probably most copies were sold, were sold to people working on the trial. Um, but there it was, and you can see in black and white, he always was actually in awe, Himmler was in awe of, uh, of uh, Hitler, and he always recorded whenever he met him. So he, he's in his, the bunker. Irving tried to say it was all the same bunker, but he, actually they all had their own bunkers in the field headquarters, a very extensive area. Uh, Gearbeitet worked, and then uh, made the phone call, and then half an hour later, beim Führer, with the leader, with Hitler. So he met Hitler after uh, he made the phone call. So Hitler could not possibly have told him to make the phone call. And Irving tried to say, well, he must have bumped into him in the corridor. But no, no, not it was a different bunker. You know. So that's the kind of falsification that permeates a lot of his writings. The point really is here. Historians make mistakes. I make mistakes. Famous historians make mistakes. We, we're not perfect. We try and check them as much as we can, but they all slip through. You know, you can guarantee the first time you get a finished copy of your book, you'll open it and there's a, an, an error somewhere, a misprint, a typo. All of Irving's mistakes supported his argument that there's no Holocaust, that, that Hitler knew nothing about it or tried to stop it. Uh, t again, two rather contradictory arguments. He didn't quite seem aware of the contradiction. Um, if he didn't know about it, he couldn't have tried to stop it. So uh, they all went in the same direction without exception. And the judge accepted that that was essentially proof that they were deliberate. They weren't accidental errors. Uh, and they permeated the whole, the whole thing. So all of his works, not to mention his much more vulgar, less guarded speeches uh, and, and, and his diary entries and, and so on. So uh, there were a number of other experts who gave testimony about Irving's connections with the far right in Germany, for example. Uh, presenting some of the evidence that he had as well falsified. Uh, Irving um, started, it kind of started with Richard Rampton, the defense QC, uh, cross-examining Irving and going through, it was rather fascinating to see my reports taken to bits by a very experienced libel lawyer and reassembled as lines of questioning. And I was uh, sitting behind uh, Richard Rampton with my team Occasionally, we'd pass him a, uh, uh, my team would pass him a note if, if they thought he needed some more information. But, uh, and I thought that quite unselfconsciously, when, when uh, bar the barrister, Richard Rampton, had these sort of lines of questioning that boxed Irving into a, quarter, in, into a corner and left him, left him with no option but to give him the answer he wanted, uh, he quite unselfconsciously took the, um, 
uh, the sleeves of his gown and pulled them in a knot behind him. It was quite fascinating to watch. So I'll give you one instance of this. He, that's not shown in the film. He, he was, um, he, there's a lot of, Irving had to accept that documents presented to him were genuine. So uh, Rampton presented him with a document. This is a report from the SS at Kelmlo, which is a, extermination, an early extermination camp where the Jews are herded into uh, vans, uh, enclosed vans, and they're driven off and the, the exhaust fumes are fed into the uh, back of the van and they die a particularly long and excruciating death. And so Irving agreed this report from the SS on this uh, 97,000 um, Jews were killed in six weeks in this way uh, and uh, it was, the stamp was right, the uh, the, the, the um, headed note paper looked right and the signature was okay, and so it's a genuine, so 97,000. Now, Mr. Irving, will you please read, uh, uh, read out this passage I've marked from your, uh, your book, um, where he says, uh, Gas van gassing was used to kill Jews, but only on an experimental scale. <laughs> Do you call 97,000 experimental, Mr. Irving? And of course, he had to say, no, it's clearly not. It left him with no, no option at all. And that happened time and again, so he was forced to make a whole long series of admissions, in effect, that he had falsified the evidence and, and misstated it to serve his case. Uh, the, then the leader of the uh, BNP, the British National Party, I'm sorry to say, a, a Cambridge history graduate, Nick Griffin, uh, complained loudly that Irving had given too much away on which he let the side down of Holocaust denial, and Irving then issued a number of retractions of his statements. But the court took a very dim view of this. You make these statements on oath. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if you retract that, then again, you're lying to serve your political purposes. So that was very damaging. He should have stuck with what he said in court. But then that was damaging too. So uh, I don't think it's a real spoiler to say that he lost the case. Um, <laughs> It, uh, it was a case that cost a lot of money, uh, altogether well over two million pounds. The movie doesn't make give quite the right impression here. The first million was paid by Penguin's insurers. Publishers are always insured against libel. Uh, secondly, the next million was paid by Pearson Longman, the multinational conglomerate who, were, were, who, who owned, at that time, owned Penguin. And... Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the rest, it's about a quarter of a million or a little bit more, was raised in fundraising by Deborah Lipstadt herself. So she didn't raise the whole, the whole, money, the whole lot. Um, Penguin fought the case, uh, I think, <coughs> although there were a couple of offers of an out-of-court settlement by Irving. Uh, they would have involved them still withdrawing the, the, withdrawing the book, admitting it was wrong and promising not to publish again and so on. So Penguin rejected those offers. Uh, they had a long uh, history of standing up for freedom of speech. They defended uh, their publication of uh, D.H. Lawrence's um, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover against an obscenity charge back in the 60s, famously when the, the judge said, would you entrust this book to your wife or your servants? And uh, won that case. More recently, they had defended Salman Rushdie against the fatwa ordering Muslims to kill him by an ayatollah in uh, in, in Iran, uh, they had um, stood by Salman Rushdie, and then uh, so this is the third time that they that they did that, uh, and they knew, of course, that if they had given in, 
no respectable historian would have published with them uh, ever again. Uh, it was um, a victory for freedom of speech. And it's often misunderstood. Irving was trying to get a book withdrawn and pulped, an, uh, a, 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 an undertaking never to publish anything like that again. He would have made it impossible for anybody to say Holocaust deniers falsify the evidence. It would have been a serious restriction on freedom of speech. And so uh, this kept the lines open. It didn't stop Irving from uh, peddling his ideas, from publishing stuff, though he had to publish it himself. And I do think the trial actually did uh, destroy his, what little reputation he had left as a serious historian. Uh, it was also, I think, uh, a victory for historians. Uh, one of the disagreements I had with Deborah Lipster was that she said, well, when the survivor generation die out, it'll be easier to deny the Holocaust. But I think we showed that that's not the case, that historians can actually assemble the evidence and show by implication that it actually happened. We can disagree, of course, about why, uh, some aspects of how, what it all meant and so on. But the factual evidence, I think, was very clear. And we did present that in the trial and showed that in order to deny the Holocaust, you have to falsify the evidence. It was uh, only a partial victory for freedom of speech because I tried to publish my, uh, my, my boiled down report and added on my, uh, my impressions of the trial, my account of it and so on, uh, and the way it was dealt with in the media. I was turned down by six publishers. And they all said, we, we, Irving was writing to all of them, threatening to sue uh, for libel if I published it. Uh, it was uh, gone through by seven different sets of lawyers. Uh, it was legally bomb-proof in the end. I didn't say anything in it that, wouldn't, that they didn't chime in with what the trial judgment had said. Uh, and Anthony Julius offered to publishers to go for what's called a strikeout. You can strike out a libel action on the grounds that all the issues have already been decided in the High Court action. But even that would have cost... 25,000, 30,000 pounds then uh, in lawyers' fees because you have to present a report and have a hearing. Uh, and the publisher said, well, there's still an element of doubt. It might actually go to trial and we can't afford that financially. We know we'd win, but we can't afford it. In the end, um, I wrote a piece about this in, in, in the papers and uh, Nick Cohen, a fighting journalist, took up my cause and I was contacted by Tariq Ali, um, leading Trotskyite, um, uh, and director of New Left Books, Verso Books. He said, we will publish, we will publish you. Uh, and we all went together to see Anthony Julius and was offering to act pro bono without a fee for a strikeout. And the financial director of uh, Verso was there. I've never seen before or since a man shaking with fear so much. <laughs> but there was nothing he could do in the face of Tarek's uh, charisma and forcefulness. So they published it. And... Um, they were, their, their publicity director was said, aren't you worried that it'll be sued? He said, no, fantastic. Nobody's ever heard of us, basically. If we are sued, <laughs> we'll be all over the papers. We'll sell loads. It's the only possible, the only possible response. Um, so it came out. Uh, it, it, curiously, I called it Telling Lies About Hitler. Uh, but in America, it was published uh, by Perseus, I think. And they, uh, they said, you've got to call it Lying About Hitler because... American books don't sell unless if, if there's more than three words in the title, which is not <laughs> true at all, of course. Um, why did Irving finally, why, why does he, how do you explain his um, sort of veneration for Hitler and the fact he thinks Hitler's a good guy? Well, um, 
But this comes through in the trial towards the end where the judge asks, uh, and taken from the transcript, we're all thrown by this question, is he sincere? And Rampton said, yes, he is sincere. And the judgment came through, yes, he is sincerely anti-Semitic and racist. He really does believe the Holocaust didn't, didn't happen and so on. Um, and he bends the evidence to, to back his prejudices with the, with the judgment. I think the judge wanted to reassure himself that he wasn't just trying to create a stir and sell books. Or, and there's a certain element in Irving that's a sort of little boy cocking, cocking a snook at the world, uh, defying establishment. He's in a, in a way a tradition of English contrarians going back to William Cobbett, which is why I think another contrarian, Christopher Hitchens, initially uh, rather liked his work, though he changed his mind when he saw how racist it, it was. So how do you explain this? Well, this came, this came through uh, in a, a, a moment in the final statement that Irving made that's not shown in the, the film because I think it would have lowered the tone a bit, where in the course of making his final statement, he, he, he addressed the judge as mein Führer. <laughs> well, yeah, well, the court's reaction was just as yours is. Unbelievable, unbelievable. Well, a couple, of, a couple of days later, I was in my office and, in, and uh, I was phone, the phone rang and it was a psychiatrist writing a book about Freudian slips. <laughs> so he said, did he say this? And I said, well, yeah, I thought so. I couldn't believe my ears. It sounded ridiculous, but I thought so. He said, yes. Well, he'd phoned up the judge and Charles Gray was very forthcoming, unusually so. And Charles Gray said, yes, he had said this because as everyone in the courtroom was falling about laughing, Irving had mumbled an apology to him. Uh, now, of course, if you look at Irving's representation of this on his website, you'll see he's, by judicious use of punctuation, he's, he's actually falsified this, but that was there. So I said to the psychologist, how do you explain this? You know? And what he, what he said was, I thought, quite convincing. Um, Irving was a, uh, born in 1938 in somewhere Brentwood um, and in Essex, and his father went away uh, to sea uh, in the war as, a, as a, a sea captain. And his mother must have said something like, your father's gone away to fight for Mr. Churchill against the evil monster Hitler. And Irving took against this and uh, found in Hitler a substitute father figure. You can think of a better one, really, can't you? But, uh, and conceived this visceral hatred for, for um, Churchill. So he was convinced from the beginning that Hitler was a good guy. If the evidence shows something else, you're justified in altering the evidence because he has a kind of hotline to the truth, the existential real truth, as opposed to what the evidence shows. He has his twin brother, who at one point changed his name to avoid being associated with him and in general didn't share any of his prejudices, remembered him at the age of four, dragging him out into the back garden as the German bombers went overhead to bomb the docks and giving them a Nazi salute. So from the age of four, this is his internal inner conviction. Hitler was a benign authority figure. Now, the judge was worried, of course, that he never said so, but that Irving would have grounds for appeal if he lost the case uh, because he was a litigant in person and didn't have a skilled, experienced lawyer representing him. So he was always helping Irving. He told him what questions to ask me, for example. He was always complimenting him on his... Uh, knowledge of the law, which actually was pretty, pretty poor, but the judge kept on being super nice to him all the way through. So for Irving, the judge was a benign authority figure, and he confused him with that other great benign authority figure <laughs> of Hitler. Well, I've talked enough, I think, but I hope if you haven't seen the movie, you will see it. It's a fair and largely accurate representation of the 
of, of the trial. It's certainly true to its spirit. It's very well made, very, very well put together, and I can strongly recommend it. And of course, uh, it's appeared at an incredibly opportune moment when we are now all worried about post-truth, alternative facts, lies, and so on. Uh, and what we did in that trial is very important, and more important today than ever. We showed that you can find the truth. It's important to find the truth. It's important to provide evidence for it. Uh, and uh, its, it's uh, lies can be nailed for what they are. Thank you very much. time for a few questions. There are roving mics, so please put your hand up. The mic will reach you and only start speaking then. And just, just before we start, do you mind, I think um, I mentioned that if we could go five, ten minutes over, you yeah, fine, happy fine. with that? Yes, yes. But if anyone needs to leave to an event now, just because yeah. we're going to go past 12, please feel free to do so. Otherwise, I hope you don't mind. I'm sure we're going yeah. to have a lot of questions. All right. So, questions. It was one there. Hello. Uh, in one of the scenes, Irving gets egged by a bunch of uh, people, the anti-Nazi league. Did mm. that actually happen? Yes, it did. He had an egg thrown at him as he was going into the courtroom for the final, for the, to hear the judgment, uh, at, which is about three weeks after the end of the actual trial proceedings. So he came in in his shirt sleeves. Um, and in fact, then after the judgment was hustled out through a back entrance to avoid them. Um, the, the case was one with costs. Were the costs ever paid? No, they weren't. Irving declared himself bankrupt and didn't pay a penny. So down, down the front here, somebody? Yeah, which would be next, next in line. Yeah. The uh, gas chambers not having holes. So how did they deliver it? Was it through the shower? No, they did have holes. That's the point. And the final scene in the movie shows the holes. It, goes, it take, takes you down a hole. So, uh, and Van Pelt actually demonstrated that in the rest of his evidence. But for dramatic effect, uh, the, the movie makes it look as if Irving won that point, which he, which he didn't really in the, long, in the longer run. So yes, they were there. But of course, the whole thing was blown up by the SS at the end of the, uh, end of the um, uh, war. And so they were quite difficult to see. But you could find them. And Van Pelt did. Yeah. Um, I think that obviously the Holocaust was sort of a six year, well, more than a six year event. And in retrospect, it, with David Irving and people like that, it needed to be proved in court that he was lying. But I think in terms of the political environment, the last couple of years, especially in the UK and the US, we've seen politicians lying outright. And you can't, within like a six week campaign, you can't take them to court and prove them wrong. And I don't know if you had any <coughs> insights or mm. thoughts as to how to deal with short-term lies like that that you can't take to court and six years later have proved yeah. wrong. I mean, one of the great things about the trial was that we could spend as much time as we wanted to on, uh, on individual points until the judge said, all right, finally, I've got the point. Let's move on, please. Uh, or, or the conversation came to an end. Um, 
So unlike, say, a seminar where you only have a couple of hours, you know, we had uh, three months to go through all of this stuff, unlike a TV program where you have 20-minute sound bites. So it was possible to do all of this in with incredible thoroughness. Uh, this meant particularly that when I got into the witness box, the press gallery emptied almost immediately because my evidence is all about German documents and so on. And one reporter complained bitterly uh, the next day that we'd spent half an hour arguing about the position of a full stop in a document. <laughs> so, but we could do that. And you can't do that in, in, in the media. It's really very, very difficult. I think it showed both that it can be done, but also how difficult it is, is to do. All we can do is what is being done is to set up websites, to have regular reporting that nails um, people's lives. I think the, the Washington Post and the New York Times doing this very effectively with Donald Trump. No wonder he's annoyed with them. Uh, his ratings have gone, gone, gone right down. It does have an effect, I think. Yeah, up, up there. In the trial, when the judge said, "Is towards the end, is Irving sincere, mm. the, the impression was that this, this might make all the difference. Yeah. Was that really the case? Well, we were, as I said, we were completely thrown by this. We thought, well... It might, but I think he wanted to, as I said, to reassure himself. And so the judge, the judgment said very clearly he, that he has these deeply held prejudices and bends the, <coughs> bends the evidence to, <coughs> to conform to them. Uh, but it was a very odd thing to say, I think. Um, fortunately, it didn't do any damage. Yeah. Down up. There's my. Hi. Hi. Um, this is not directly about the trial, but um, do you think that postmodernist relativist historians bear any responsibility for, um, not, not for David Irving, but for making people more likely to believe his work? Well, um, I, I, uh, I wrote this book called In Defense of History, which uh, tried to argue that extreme postmodernist, post-structuralist type of relativism uh, was, was easily refutable. Um, uh, did not do any good for historians, um, though I, I embraced the cultural turn in history, which is a more moderate version of it. Curiously, uh, you know, it's the idea that um, uh, the text, a text, any text, has meaning put into it only by the person who reads it. Right? You can't control, as a person who writes a text, uh, what what meanings will be given to it. And in that case, you, uh, <coughs> of course, that makes the work of a historian impossible. And curiously, when I published this, then the postmodernist reviewers claimed I'd misinterpreted their work. <laughs> so I, I, I rest my case, my lord. Uh, and then I rather incautiously, uh, when, the whole, when the Trump phenomenon began, uh, tweeted. Um, I'm on Twitter and social media and so on, uh, as we all have to be these days. So uh, I tweeted, without postmodernism, no post-truth. Boy, there was a huge Twitter storm. Uh, I think the best comment was, so you think Donald Trump reads Jacques Derrida, do you? <laughs> uh, but that's not the point. The point is uh, that there's a climate. You only have to read Susan Hark's uh, very uh, illuminating writings about this, the climate in American universities in particular in the 90s, where it was almost in the humanities department, so it's almost de rigueur to say there's no such thing as truth. There are only competing truths and so on. Of course, there can only be one truth about anything. We may not know what it is, we may not find it, but you can't two things that say opposite things cannot both be true. It's a very basic point. 
So I do think that that climate of opinion in humanities departments in the American universities does bear some responsibility. Um, you can see it in Karl Rove's notorious statement uh, under George W. Bush, who's an advisor, that uh, we're in power now, we make the truth, we decide what's true. Uh, and the problem is that postmodernism saw itself as an oppositional um, movement, as it were, but it's been kind of hijacked by people in power in that very vague sort of distant uh, sense at many different removes. And what's different now is that um, politicians don't seem to care about whether they're speaking anything like the truth or not. They will quite barefacedly use lies if it's to their advantage, and that is deeply worrying. Yeah. Can I just add, anyone interested in that topic, we yes. have a debate on this very issue at 1.30 p.m. Yep. here called Is Relativism to Blame for the Post-Truth World? So yes. I promise you that question wasn't planted, yeah. but uh, <laughs> if, if it is of interest uh, to you, we do have spaces, so do come along. Okay, what's the next? Yep. Yes. Um, in her book um, about the trial, Deborah Libstadt gives the impression that you found falsifications in just about every paragraph of David Irving's work, or certainly his later work. Did you, in fact, find, did your team find that to be the case? Well, uh, we did a sort of control. You can read those about this in my book. So, uh, <laughs> uh, to say, you know, is it only Hitler that he's falsifying? And uh, so we looked at his account, his first book, which attracted a lot of attention, on the bombing of Dresden. Now, Dresden's a beautiful Baroque city uh, towards the eastern side of Germany, uh, in Saxony, that was bombed on the 13th, 14th of February, 1945, and completely destroyed. And um, uh, this, there's long been a, a lot of argument about this. Was it justified? Was it necessary? Um, you, you can argue a, a great deal. Uh, Irving tr tried to use this to inflate the figures uh, of dead, just as he was deflating the figures of the dead from the Holocaust. So they more or less are even uh, to suggest that the Allies' war crimes are just as great as those of, of, of the Nazis. Um, and we found just endless, uh, he kept on changing the, uh, the numbers of dead from whatever he found. And the clearest example of this was when he uh, presented a document uh, called uh, Tagesbefehl 47, uh, day, order of the day 47, which was a report by the police chief of Dresden to the, the, the Nazis in Berlin, particularly the propaganda ministry, on the numbers of dead. And Irving found a copy of this, or a copy of a copy of a copy, uh, which said there had been a quarter of a million dead, uh, which is massive. Uh, but he already was on record a few years before saying he knew this is a falsification because, uh, in fact, what happened was Goebbels added a naught to all the figures. So the actual number was to 25,000, not to 50,000. And Irving knew this, but he was willing to use this in his later incarnation as a Holocaust denier to try and... Uh, suggest an equation between the two sides. So that was a clear, that was, we looked through 32 different editions in English and German of his book on Dresden alone. Doing the whole, everything he'd written, everything he said would have been too much, so we had to sample. But we took a large, large enough sample to, I think, make our case. Um, so maybe one more question? Just one more question. Anybody? Gentleman down the front here. <coughs> Uh, when and how can we see the film? Sorry? <laughs> when, 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 
may we see the film? Uh, you buy the DVD or download it. Got, uh, maybe on Netflix, certainly Amazon, or buy the DVD. It's come and gone in the cinemas, but it was on general release. Uh, and I strongly recommend it. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. <laughs>